Well, good morning. How you guys doing? Look at that. You got a bow in your hair, and she's got a pretty new dress. Wow, that's nice, huh? Well, I'm going to tell you a story about trusting God. And sometimes when you trust God and you're trying to tell people about Jesus, it, it's not always easy. And maybe some of you know this, but I want to share with you, this is a picture of the Umpqua Community College campus that I was at for a little while. That's the only picture I have today. Yeah, for the children's story. I've got more pictures for the sermon, though, if you'd like to watch that. Okay. So if you look there, that's the fountain there. And past the fountain was a library. And past that was a, write, uh, was, uh, a couple class, some classrooms. And I was in a writing class. How many of you guys like to read or write? Anybody? Are you learning to? Well, unfortunately for me, I had uh, graduated from, from high school early. That was a good thing. But I had had a year off of studies. And so then I went to college out here, and I had forgotten quite a bit of some of the English language. And so I had a teacher who said, well, for your final paper, you need to do a research paper. You need to do this format, and you had to write it a certain way, and you had a certain number of sources. And so she said, if you've got a subject you want to do it on, come see me. And I was a new Christian, and I had just studied Daniel chapter 2. I remember I was so fascinated by it. The local pastor at the Adventist Church had taken us through it quite a bit. And I said to the teacher, I'd like to study the history of this vision. And she said, well, you had better have good historical sources. So I went to the library, which is just past that fountain there. And I'll have Deron put new batteries in here too. There's the fountain, and past that was the library. And I went in there, and I was thinking, I wonder how many sources they have, because it starts off with Nebuchadnezzar, so I've got to find some sources for that. Then it deals with Cyrus, so I've got to find some sources for that. This whole dream of Nebuchadnezzar's vision, you guys remember that? The head of gold, arms and chests of silver, bellies, okay, all that down, all the way down, the, the multiple medals. So I got a whole stack of books. I mean, this library actually had quite a bit of history books. I started looking through them. And I started putting my paper together, and then I used the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary to kind of help give me an outline, because I was really new to how to write like this. And I didn't want to be plagiarizing, but because you know what that is, right? You borrow something from an author and you don't give them credit for. But this Seventh-day Adventist Commentary had a nice outline of some of this stuff. And so I started putting it together, and my first draft, I took it to the teacher. You know what she said? I don't like this. She handed me the paper back, and she had X'd out whole pages of the paper. It was a 20-page paper, and I had to go back through and redo 10 of those pages, which meant you had to redo more because you have to figure out how to. And I said, Lord, I don't know how to write the way this lady wants me to, and, and, and she doesn't like my topic, and she's afraid, really, that I'm going to present something that she's not going to agree with, and it's Christian on a non-Christian campus. So I was going for a walk one day. I had a paper route. And in, tho in those days, they still have some of them. The, some of the paper boys, they carry papers. And he, I had a huge thing of papers, and I got paid a certain amount per month carrying this gigantic load of papers. And one of the places I went was this road called Galaxy Road. Galaxy Road in Winston is this road that goes up, and you can see the whole surrounding valley, basically. And on the way back down, I happened to see one of my customers. He was an old principal of mine. The kind of principle that could take you and, and put you down to the ground by just grabbing your shoulder or, or getting a hold of you. 
that was my old principal. And I said, Mr. Frazier. He said, yes, uh, how are things going with your college? I said, well, that's just it. Uh, have you ever proofread any papers? And he said, well, I used to be an English teacher. <laughs> I didn't know that. I just know him as a principal. It would grab, you know, it would discipline people. And he used the belt back in those days when I was in elementary school. And that's all I knew him as. And I'm thinking, wow, God, this is an English teacher. This is, and I said, this is what I need. Can I bring my paper over and, and you can just tear it apart and give me suggestions? And I, and I said, I really need help writing a research paper because I'd never written a really in-depth one before. So he said, no problem. So bring it by next time you're on the paper route. So I brought it by. I gave it to him. He looked at it. And he said, that's an interesting topic. God's blueprint. Hmm. So he went back to his house. Next day I come by, and he's got it all marked up. He says, why don't you come and sit with me for a little while? We sat down together, and he showed me exactly how to write this thing. He's like, this is why you need to rewrite this. The other teacher wouldn't explain it. And he walked me through how to write that paper. I went to the teacher with my next draft. She said, after she graded it, this is much better. But you still need to do a little bit of work on it. And she, she went ahead and marked a few things off. I went back and I said to Mr. Fraser, can you explain to me maybe why she's doing this? Because she wouldn't give me much of an answer. And he said, well, this is why. And he explained some of the comma, comma problems that I had. And so I went back and made those corrections, read through it again a few more times, brought our final draft back to Mr. Frazier. He says, I think you're ready. I think you're ready. Well, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story next week because I took that back to my other teacher at the college, and there was something else you had to do. You had to get up in front of the class and give them a speech on your paper. And I'm going to tell you how that speech went next week. But I was thankful that the Lord had given me help to be a witness for Jesus because there I was on that campus. I didn't have the tools I thought I needed. I didn't know how to write the paper the way she wanted it. And there I was praying about it, and God provided the very person who I never thought would be the English teacher and Mr. Fraser, my, my principal. So God provides for us. So in life, if you get to a situation where you don't know what to say or what to do, just pray to God. He'll send the right person or he'll send the right help so you can talk more about Jesus to others. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for each young person here, Lord, and their families. You know exactly what their future holds. You know the people they are going to be talking to in the future. You know the papers they're going to be writing. You also know the trials they're going to be going through. I pray that through all of them, they will remember to uh, pray and talk to you and ask you for your help in all those situations. Bless them, Lord. Keep Guide them and all of us to be the people you'd have us to be all the way to the new earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for how you lead each one of us and you bring us to this place even now. There are so many things that we could speak about regarding how you've helped us. But at the end of this, we just want to be thankful that we can be your witnesses. Guide us to see how that can take place in each one of our lives in the midst of even the most adverse situations we may face. Send the Holy Spirit now to guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're beginning a new series this week called Revelation's Overcoming Bride. That's our emphasis. It's one thing to know Jesus. It's one thing to know about him. But at a certain point in our experience, at least as I read Matthew 25, there, everyone sleeps as far as the virgins. But there are those who have their lamps filled. And I want to be one of those who through everything that comes, through the darkest things that are ahead of us, I want to be one of those ones who are ready to go when the bridegroom comes. 
And that's what we're going to be looking at. So this is the, first, the next three installments are going to be introductions to Revelation. And then we're going to go to the bride in Revelation, the seven churches of Revelation. And so this one's entitled The Witness of Jesus. I was reading about Horatio Spafford. You might recognize the song that we sang, It Is Well With My Soul. He wrote that song. And I was amazed as I looked at some history leading up to that song. And I put it up on the screen for you. Something, interesting, something happened in 1871 in Chicago. You know the great Chicago fire, right? Well, Horatio, Mr. Spafford, who was a Presbyterian church elder, he had invested quite a bit of money into Chicago. He, had, he was a lawyer. He had also had investments that he made just to kind of uh, keep his businesses intact. And he had invested a, a huge sum of money in Chicago, but it was all burned up in 1871 in the Chicago fire. Lost a huge, sizable portion of his investment. That same year, he lost his son to scarlet fever, his little boy. He actually had uh, four daughters and this little boy. And in 1873, after all that that went on, he losing in his business investments, losing his son that he was hoping would be with him a whole lot longer, he said to his family, let's go over to London, let's go over to England, see Dwight L. Moody. And as they began to prepare the trip, some business endeavors came up. He had to stay back, and some of you might know the story. But he sent his wife and his four little girls. And I look at the ages, and I, think, I automatically think of my kids. 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 2-year-old. He sent them ahead on the boat to deal with, uh, while well, he dealt with the business endeavor. And the story goes that the boat was struck by an iron sailing boat. It just plowed into it. His wife, Anna, survives, and she sends a note, basically a telegram back, saying, saved alone. 226 people and four of them were his little girls. Imagine going through all that in one year. Your business endeavor, your boy, and then two years later, less than two years later, your four girls. And you get this note from your wife or your spouse, if, if, you, if you want to go the other route. And, they, and it says, I'm the only one left. It almost reminded me of Job in some, some, some respects. But as I read that story, and you can read about it on, on all kinds of sources, Wikipedia has an article, there's all kinds of other articles. I asked the question as I paused the story there, and it's not the end of the story, we'll get to that later at the end. How would Mr. Spafford overcome such a series of traumatic and tragic events? We know he's an elder, that's a hint. But how would you overcome that? Especially when the grief hits you and the numbness sets in and the feeling of, is this really happening, begins to echo in your mind. All of us face some kinds of traumatic or tragic events. It could be a loved one who's passed. It could be a financial situation. It could be things that are going around us, on around us all the time that make the world seem like it's out of control. But the question still comes. How do we overcome those things? Become better through that and then become a witness of Jesus to say, you know what, look what he has brought me through. Years earlier, think about John. And, and you can put your mind around this. There are different records who record some of his traumatic events. Imagine being the only one left as far as the apostles. All are gone. You're considered an enemy of the state. They take you and put you in chains, take you towards a boiling vat 
of uh, oil, and he'd intend to cook you to death in that oil. Now, you all been burned by oil on your stove or something like that, or a fire, you know this is painful. Uh, this is like the fiery furnace experience, but uh, deep fat fried, you know, this is, this, is, this is serious. I mean, imagine here you are witnessing for Jesus, and this is what is your expected end, to die in that cauldron of oil. What would be going through your mind? We're not told exactly what went through his mind, but we're told that he faced that. He actually survived that miraculously. It, it, some, uh, some records record that basically he wasn't harmed by this boiling oil when all scientific evidence should say the opposite. And he wrote something, which is what we're going to look at here today, Revelation chapter 1. Somebody who's been through, literally, one of the most traumatic events of his life. He's not only seen his Lord and Savior die, he's seen all his friends in the faith as far as those original disciples die, and now they've attempted to kill him. They've taken him away now from his church family. They've isolated him on this island of Patmos, but yet he's not alone. It's almost like the Lord walks to him on the waters. It says in Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants even the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, even of all things that he saw. Imagine the whole book of Revelation, which eventually becomes a letter, which eventually finds its way into our bound versions. It's all this vision of Jesus. It says it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. You all know what the meaning of revelation is, right? You maybe had Revelation seminars before my time, before I was probably even born. A revealing or disclosing of Jesus. And in John, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 14 through 17, we've been looking at that. We know that all the revealings of Jesus come through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies of the words of Jesus, and the words of Jesus testify of the Father. They're all three entwined in this whole message that we're talking about. And in Revelation, later on in chapter 1, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, the Sabbath. It's a Sabbath vision, a vision that points to Jesus. If you wonder why I'm so much repeating myself, as far as it all boils down to him, Jesus. It's because I have prophetic license to do so. It's pretty clear from this text. He sees himself as a servant, John, before he was, we know, a son of thunder. This experience and the experiences before have enabled him to be that servant, to be the humble one that he is. And it points out here, if Jesus is what needs to be revealed to his church, then the bride needs Jesus. Not what the world points out, not some watered-down version that we see others are, are preaching and talking about, and not something that's going to take our minds away from him. But it's tied to something here as well. This revealing of Jesus is deeper than just talking about Jesus. It says here, the things which must shortly come to pass... That is a direct link back to Daniel chapter 2. And I'll show you that on the screen. If you want to look at the Greek, you can look at it. It's there. 
the things which must soon take place, you find the first bullet lists the Greek for you, and then it lists down the English translation, which must come into being soon or swiftly. So John has this vision, and it's to point out these things that are going to take place swiftly. And guess what? If you look back at Daniel, you can see it pretty clear from the screen there. It's the exact beginning of the same phrase. This is why Old Testament scholars and New Testament scholars say Daniel and Revelation go together. And what is being talked about here in Revelation? It's a revealing of Jesus. So if Revelation is a revealing of Jesus, and it has direct quotations from Daniel, then Daniel is a revealing of Jesus. Both of them are a revealing of Jesus. Kings of the north, kings of the south, everything in between, the little horn, all of that points you, supposed to point you in a direction. You're not supposed to look at the beautiful rainbow colors of the horn. I have a, a ram. He's got thick horns. They call it a rainbow stripe. And as much as it's beautiful to look at, some tell you watch your back because that ram will hit you in the back. He's never done that. It's, it's, it's the strangest humble experience. Maybe when we sell off the babies and he all of a sudden goes through depression, he might change. But um, he's been very loving, very kind. But you look at his horns and you think, wow, that is amazing. It's, it's, it's amazing how this is, God has made this. But the point of the Old Testament is, this is abnormal. To have this little horn coming up and uprooting all these things. This is supposed to get your attention because now all of a sudden this is warring against God himself, warring against Michael himself, warring against the saints. And the goal of the saints is to focus and lift up their heads to the one who will save them. Not to say, okay, I better know every single, and I'm not saying we shouldn't know details of it, but how does the horn and how do these different powers point us to Christ? It's a contrast. It's saying, when you see all this start taking place, the only way you're not going to be like this, or you're not going to be following into that, is to know the God of heaven. That's what Daniel talks about. And Revelation makes it even clearer. You have to know this Jesus. And so I'm showing you these, these texts, and we know the Old Testament was not written in Greek, but this is the Greek version of the Old Testament, and it is pretty clear there's a correlation between Revelation chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 2. So all the, the things that are taking place in our world are part of a revealing of Jesus. Because at the end of that whole vision of Daniel chapter 2, it's the kingdom that are, is our focus. That's what will stand forever, not this world. There's another one down there in Daniel chapter 2. It mentions it was to signify or to show to the king the things that would take place at the last days. Similar word that you find in Revelation as far as it being signified. Similar type of definition. And so as I look at the original language of, Dan, of Revelation and point it back to there, and, and you can look at Hebrew and other things as well, it's, it's clear that the things which must soon take place, that everything that happens in our world is going to do something to us. It's going to point us to Jesus. And I know that's a huge quotation on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. If you want me to email it to you, I can. It's from Fundamentals of Education, page 473. The witnesses of Jesus recognize that all the prophecies and scriptures point to Jesus. Strict integrity should be cherished by every student. Every mind should turn with reverent attention to the revealed word of God. Light and grace will be given to those who thus obey God. 
They will behold wondrous things out of his law, great truths that have lain unheeded and unseen since the day of Pentecost are to shine from God's word in their native purity. To those who truly love God, the Holy Spirit will reveal truths that have faded from the mind, or maybe have not been emphasized, and will also reveal truths that are entirely new. And here's the bottom line. Those who eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God will bring from the books of Daniel and Revelation truth that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. I submit to you that even as I am speaking, there is truth that is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. There are facts that this world does offer, but in some way or another, they don't point us in the right direction. Let me ask you a question. Do I need to come up here every week and point out to you all the evils in the church? Let's get a little more personal. Do I need to get up here every week and point out all your evils to the whole church? Or my evils to the whole church? We don't do that. We come together just like John on the Lord's Day there with his Lord to be encouraged. To say, you know what? This world has distracted me from Jesus and somehow maybe my feet are slipping from the path and I want to make sure that they're firmly planted on this path before I leave here. If my compass has somehow got out of whack during the week, this is the time to reconfigure. All heaven is joining us on this day. And the flesh and the blood of the word of God is all about the son of God. When he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he said, and that's my words, she goes on and says, Daniel and Revelation should show that as well. Another one, and this is talking about John and how he was persecuted and he bore this testimony, he was a witness. In the terrible persecution that followed, the apostle John did much to confirm and strengthen the faith of the believers. That was his goal. I could discourage you beyond belief this morning. I have things that come across my desk, I told you about this, that make me concerned, very concerned. But the biggest concern I have is that we become similar to what we're beholding. That the evil that we, we see happening, that somehow it, it, it changes us into that which we behold. And the only thing I know that cures that poison is the water of life from the word of God. That is the only thing I know. This is what John would do. He would come along and try to confirm and strengthen the faith of the believers. He bore a testimony with which his adversaries could not con controvert, which helped his brethren to meet with courage and loyalty the trials that came upon them. When the faith of the Christians would seem to waver under the fierce opposition they were forced to meet, look at the timeline, it's clear, this is the time of persecution under Domitian. The old tried servant of Jesus would repeat with power and eloquence the story of the crucified and risen Savior. That was what he would do. He would then maintain his faith, and it says here, the message would be this, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life, Jesus himself, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. This is from Acts of the Apostles, page 568. He's commenting on John, that's a whole chapter, on him being alone on the island of Patmos. It's a beautiful chapter. Get the book, read it. Read that chapter. It's, it's clear. His main goal was... 
Though I could be discouraged, though I could be down, though I, I got a Roman soldier right here near me, though I'm on this island of pen, this penal colony, that's not my focus. We're on a penal colony, folks. This world is a penal colony, if you haven't figured it out yet. And it's going to need Jesus to come back to make it something else. People, without Jesus, we're miserable beyond belief. And I hate to say, if, if, if we come here week after week and we don't know him, then great is that darkness. Because then you have to bear it alone. But church is not about that. It's about coming together and encouraging each other and saying, I have a friend who's brought me through this. Oh, such a friend. He loved me before I ever knew him. And so John would point them to Jesus. That was his witness. Another one I've been told. The sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for sin is the great truth, the great truth around which all other truths cluster. There are other things as well that we emphasize as a, as a, as a church. In order to be rightly understood and appreciated, every truth in the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation must be studied in the light that streams from the cross of Calvary. I present before you the great grand monument of mercy and regeneration, salvation and redemption, the Son of God uplifted on the cross. The Son of God who says, Father, forgive Murray, for he sometimes doesn't even know what he's doing. Forgive us. Maybe we're the ones who would utter those words of condemnation. Uh, we'd say, well, I wouldn't do it at the cross. Well, we'd do it to each other. And frankly, I've had enough of it. It's just, it's just like, if you want to utter negative words, go ahead. If you want to go about in widespread trade and, and trade all kinds of things that point us in a different direction, you can do that at your home or somewhere else, but not here at church. And if that's, not, if that's somehow limiting religious freedom, then that's exactly what had to happen to Lucifer at a certain point because he would go about, and it says in Ezekiel, widespread trade. And that, in the Hebrew, it's the idea of gossiping, tearing people down. And so I'm going to present this person to you. And it says here, this person, Jesus, is to be the foundation of every discourse. So let's continue. Enough of that little soapbox over there. Revelation 1. So then I, John, your brother and partaker with you in tribulation and kingdom and patience. He knows exactly where his goal is, his kingdom. It's not of this world. That's what Jesus said. He also knows he's been through some trouble. We've all been through some, haven't we? But notice he feels like he's a partaker with his, his fellow believers in patience. And that's only found in Jesus. He says, I was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So we know John, right? He's that son of thunder. Now he's humble in his old age. He, all he can seem to talk about in his letters, though he does have some, some pointing out of the Antichrist, we find that in his letters as well. The bulk is, watch out for this, focus on Jesus. That took a conversion. And I've come to the conclusion that I need that every day. I need that refocus every day. There's some conversations I have that in the middle of it, the Lord's like, Murray, you're coming across too strong here. And I have to literally say, Lord, okay, give me your love. Give me love. John somehow went through that. 
He's known as a beloved disciple. He's going on to this island of Patmos, which only best attempt I could find out as far as the meaning of that is more, the word Patmos means mortality or my killing. And literally, he's on an island that symbolizes this is supposed to be the end of you, John. And in its own definition says, this will be your killing. And what we find at the end of the story is only, the only thing that seems to die from John is his self, his sinful self. Because at the end he says, let him who is righteous continue to be righteous. Let him who is holy continue to be holy. And the opposite is true. The unholy will remain. He, he says, Lord, come quickly. Or Maranatha we get at the end of the book. Interesting, isn't it? He's on this island of mortality. He gets this vision of immortality. He's on this island where it should be seeming dismal to him and all the things around him should be pointing him to, to somehow tragedy. But he looks up and he sees Jesus. It's, it's amazing. And you can see pictures of it. I've never been here. I've flown over the Mediterranean Sea once. Beautiful blue, uh, aqua blue waters. This is a picture of that. There's the Aegean Sea, which is closer to where John's at. And here's Patmos. You can see the white-walled buildings. And what we're told about John, as far as what he's going through, is that it's a time of great persecution. And so the evidence from this book is, and you can see it from various historical sources, I've put one up on the screen there, talked about the reign of Domitian and how huge persecution was ringing out. But within the book itself, it suggests it's a time of great persecution Many of John's friends have died. He's facing death. And he's on this island because of his faith in Jesus. And once again, where's his focus? I think we've got a great time of persecution coming as well. And our focus has to be the same. And so we find in Revelation 1 verse 9, he's on the island of Patmos alone by himself. We find in Revelation 2, he has, uh, Antipas has been killed. In Revelation 2.10, there's been imprisonment of believers at Smyrna. We find in Revelation 3, there's a general persecution occurring in the Christian church. In Revelation chapter 6, there are martyrs or witnesses for Jesus dying. And in chapter 17, we find a specific thing that points to Rome itself initiating a lot of this persecution. And so there's internal evidence, external evidence. Everything's pointing to a dismal fate for John. And yet he seems... Very encouraged as he begins this book, doesn't he? The patience that is in Jesus. So when did he write? Well, most people believe that he's writing somewhere around, uh, because you can put it all together there, somewhere around 95 to 100 AD. It helps us get the context. It shows us that more than likely all these events that have taken place to the church, everything from military emperors to these different types of leaders and persecutors, they, they basically show us a lot of things have happened. Wars have happened. Persecutions have happened. Christians have died. And yet, what is going on with John? He's still focusing on Christ. That's where Revelation begins. And so it shows us, through the book itself, where his focus was in the midst of all of the trouble. And then as we look at the seven churches, which will be our main focus for the, for the next little while, I see the candlesticks. I see the holy place language there. And some people say, well, that's just holy place language in the sanctuary. And if you're not familiar with the two compartments, go look it up in the Old Testament. Basically, holy place, talking about um, emphasis on sacrifice and all of that. Most holy place, the main emphasis is on judgment. And some people say, well, the judgment type of language does not occur until way down. But the judgment occurs 
with Laodicea. And if you doubt me, read John's writings in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John where he describes how there are those who claim to know Jesus but really don't and how God will treat them. God will judge them. They will be found guilty. And in some way, they will actually detract from the Son of Man himself. And so, as I look at Laodicea, it's a judgment scene. It's, it's basically, you're either with me or against me. And if not, I'm going to spew you out of my body. Because the, the, the spit is coming out of Christ's mouth. Christ's body represents, of course, you know, we know we talk about the church. And so a judgment is taking place. Something has to be ejected from the church if it does not know Christ. So the seven churches go through the holy place, but they wind up with the judgment of Laodicea. And my conclusion with that is if we do not become witnesses of Jesus, beholders of him, then the condemnation that Jesus talked about in John chapter 5 remains. The crino, the judgment, the fearful looking forward to of the end, that will remain for those who, when Jesus comes knocking, do not open the door. And so they'll be condemned. And if you look at the rest of the book, it's most holy place, MHP, all the way through. So if I get to, through the seven churches with you, and for some reason, I'm not focusing on Christ in my life, then that whole rest of the book means nothing. It may get you lots of historical goodies, but it won't get you the water of life. And that's the sad reality. Um, a lot of Christian churches will focus just on the seven churches and not do any of the rest. We focus a lot on, on the rest, but we need to also remember the seven churches. We need to realize that each one, Jesus came to them personally with a message and said, this is what I need from you. This is something in our relationship that needs to be dealt with. This is something that's hindering your faith in me, your witness for me. Because we get down to New Jerusalem, that's all most holy place. That's all the beautiful sanctuary of God. And that's where I want to be. I want to be down there. I want to be in that beautiful place where it says, I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. They're the very temple. The lamb himself is the very temple. And don't get hung up on Solomon's incense. There's a whole bunch of articles on that. It's really before this curtain here, but there on the Day of Atonement, it oftentimes takes on meaning in the most holy place as well. So this is really where our focus needs to be. The lamb is the temple. The Lord God and the lamb are the temple. And we have to know him. So the witnesses of Jesus recognize that all the prophecies in Scripture point to Jesus because we're preparing to meet him. They also tell others to live. Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride, that's the waiting bride, say, come, and let one hearing say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and he who is willing, let him take of the water of life freely. And this is what we find as we continue on. For I testify together to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add on him the plagues that have been written in this book. You can't supplement this message of Christ. You can put little footnotes in and, and, and kind of you know, point out some historic, historicity. That's what we do. We have done historically as evidence. That's, that's fine. And grammatically, we can do all kinds of study. But we can't get lost in that. 
We can't just get lost in the minutia so that we miss the man himself. This was a vision from his friend in that dismal situation John was facing. It was to be experienced in red in every church, and it was to remind us of all kinds of things, including the Sabbath itself. What a better place to read Revelation than on Sabbath. It's that type of book. So we can't, we can't supplement Jesus. And then it says, And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which have been written in this book. If I detract from him or subtract from him or point you in a direction away from him and don't bring it back to him, it's one thing to take a diversion with the beast and show historically here's everything that's been going on. It's going to show its ugly head again. But this is how Jesus is going to deal with it. That's really where the focus should be. Otherwise, if I get stuck in all those details and I lose sight of him, it's like that vision that was given to the Adventist church. That path was going up and Jesus was at the end of it. And if we lost sight of him, what happens? You're off the path. We can be in a small shaking in the church right now, and the biggest reason why people are going to be shaken out is because they don't stay focused on him. I don't care what side of the, of the wide path you're on. If you're far right, if you're far left, that's the wide path. The narrow way is in between somewhere. Let's not go far right and far left. Let's just stay on the path. doesn't mean we water anything down. It just means that we know where our end point is at. It means, yeah, this is scenery. We are, we're aware of it. But this is where we're going. So I don't want to subtract from that. He who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. This is the great witness. Yes, John says, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with, be with you all. Amen. So that's, that's the end of the book. You saw the beginning. He's focusing on him. At the end, he's focusing on him. He's saying, yes, Lord, come. And so we must be these type of people. You've read this, right? Revelation 14, 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are the ones who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. More debate over that word faith of Jesus in Greek class than any other debate. So I'm, I'm going to put that right out there for you. To me, it seems very simple. The word of is a genitive. There's only so many categories of genitive. And if, if I've lost you there, then forgive me. But basically, in the Greek, it depends on how you're using the word of as to how it's formulated, how you should translate it. If you have a preconceived idea in the back of your mind based on a whole bunch of other scriptures, maybe you misquoted something or you twisted something else, then you could go to that text and twist that to fit that. But if you're saying, you know what, I want to read this verse around it in the chapter, the rest of the book, read all the rest of John's writings, see how he does it, and say, Lord, help me, that's a little better attitude. Not that I know everything, but that I need help. And so they keep the commandments of God. This is literally is they, they're holding on to them. Those who stay focused on Christ will never let go of those commandments. It's like letting go of his hand. So that's not what we're ever going to be. And then this faith of Jesus. It could be faith belonging to Jesus, faith like Jesus, uh, faithfulness of Jesus. What about faith which has its object in Jesus? 
it seems to be most likely an objective genitive. Because as you look at the rest of what John says, his focus is clear in this book. And so we hold on to that and we maintain the, the path that we're on, focusing as our object on Jesus. Once you narrow it down, and, and if you know the grammar and the, and the syntax, you can start shaving off some of these other genitives. It only narrows it down to really two. It's the faith of Jesus, like something he has and he gives to you, or it's the faith looking to Jesus. It, those are the two prominent ones. You could take it either way, and I think there could be a blend of both. Because really, he first loved us, and then my focus should be on him. So, but notice this next verse. And this one here, I was, gonna not, I was going to have it in the scripture reading, but I decided to put it here instead. I heard a voice from heaven. This is right after it describes God's people, the patience of the saints, the very ones that John is committing at the beginning. He's saying this is what they look like. And then it says, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So they give, her the, they give this message of Revelation 14. It describes what they look like. And then just before the harvest scenes, after verse 13, as you go to 14 onward, there's a harvest eventually, a massive dying off of God's people. You see, I'm reading into the text, right? Well, look at Methuselah. Look at the days of Noah. You can't tell me that all the good people that, I mean, what happened to them? We know Enoch went up, but others died off in the faith right before the flood. So it will be coming the Son of Man. So you have this blessing, this saying, the happiness of God's people will be to have lived the life of faith in Jesus, like this is talking about in verse 12. And then if they die, when it's all said and done, they're resurrected, it's like looking back and seeing all the people that God has used you to touch. It uses a word um, that says their works will follow them. It's not like a list of good deeds and you got brownie points. It's follow this idea of disciple. Somehow there'll be people behind you because of your actions that are following. It's amazing, isn't it? So what we leave behind in life is very important. It has to be life-giving. It has to point those people to the same path that we've been pointed to. But I want to say this. A lot of dear people, even in this congregation, many of you will pass away. And if, if the Lord and it's not saying necessarily of, young, of old age here either. It's saying many of us will pass away before the harvest takes place. Don't be discouraged by it. It's going to happen. It's basically an indicator that, that it's about to take place. It's always happened that way. People have lived and died in every generation, you say. But, but this is right before the harvest. He's saying there's a blessing in that. Some of us may not be able to make it through to the end. And out of mercy, he says... All right, that cancer, even though it hurts me to see you go through it, is going to overtake you. you know, Satan intends it for evil, I intend it for good, and you're going to go to sleep before all that. I've even seen people who basically, and I heard a story just recently about it, they're dying and they're looking for Jesus. And he sends an angel to appear to them just to encourage them before they die. My grandfather, years ago, my, not my grandpa Hagee, but my grandpa Miller, we were in the hospital with him, and he looked past my wife and said, who is that standing beside you, dear? Or, um, sweetie, or something. He said something to that effect. I'm thinking, well, he's hallucinating, right? You know, I don't know. 
I mean, we know that the Lord sends in mercy indicators to us that you're going to make it through. So death as a sleep right before the harvest is not something to dread. It's something that probably will take place in a lot of our congregations. I've done more funerals and baptisms in the last 10 years. So I see that from a personal standpoint. But I'm encouraged because even if there's only a few remaining after it's all said and done, even if I was to lose my life, whether it be through martyrdom as far as witnessing for Jesus or just natural causes or sickness, which is unnatural causes, but anyway, this could still be fulfilled in me. So I'm willing for this to take place. And so we must witness for Jesus, recognize that all the prophecies point to him, they're preparing us to meet him. We tell others to live, even if somehow we were to die in that process. And then the last point is, we overcome adversity by looking to Jesus. And I know this because I looked up the word life, and I've done this before and I did it again recently. This word life or living occurs 18 times in the American Standard. Okay, you can look it up in others if you want. I had this particular study guide, that was, uh, study book that I was using. And then the word eternal, linked to that message in Revelation 14. Start adding that into the mix. You see the audience of the Lamb. They want to have their name in the book of life, the idea of life being mentioned. They want to drink of the water of life and share that with others. They want to eat of the tree of life. And so as adverse as things may get, the end of the book says, for God's witnesses and followers, there is life. And so he witnessed for Jesus. John looked to him in adversity. And according to historical records, what I find interesting is that he went from Patmos, and there alone writing that book, right? Um, just like we can feel alone sometimes, whether, whatever situation we're in. He saw all these things on Patmos that speak to his situation, that spoke to his situation, but also speak to ours. And we find, and it's interesting, and God cares, you can also find it in other sources, that it's believed that John was released from that island. I didn't know that a while back. I was like, I always assumed he died over there. You know, he, something happened. Maybe they boiled him again. Who knows? But it seems that though things look dismal, and then Jesus gives him this vision, at the, end, at the end of his life, he was able to leave that place, circulate more and more his writings of Revelation before he died. And so he leaves that dismal situation for, the, for a hopeful one, though he himself will die after delivering the message. And he continued to be a witness for Jesus. And I believe we're still reading it today because the Lord intended through John that he would write those words for us. That we would be encouraged by John as we read these words. And so I look at John's example and now I go back to the original story. Horatio Spafford, we know he overcame that tragedy. What's interesting is as you look at different historical accounts and different sources, you find the, the same common denominator. In fact, uh, one of his little girls eventually uh, remembered some details and wrote it down. That he went over the same route that his family had gone over. And the family later records in the records that he composed it as well with my soul as he's going by that area. So imagine you're going by the area where four little girls die, lost in the sea. Same type of route. You're looking out there, you're seeing the waters, maybe it's choppy, maybe it's not. And deep sorrow overcomes you 
And what do you do in that deep sorrow? Same thing John did. The same thing all witnesses of Jesus do. He looked to Christ. In fact, he wrote a verse that's not in our hymnal. It says this. He mentions when sorrow like sea billows roll. He's looking out there. He's, he's writing this. But he says, For me, be it Christ, be it Christ, hence to live, if Jordan above me shall roll. That's death. That's a symbol for death. If you're looking at our hymnal, people believe going under Jordan as they wrote these hymns was succumbing to death, death overcoming you. No pain shall be mine, for in death as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. That one's not in our hymnal. In fact, our last verse in our hymnal, he didn't, it was later added. This verse actually went before it. And so, how do we get to that last verse? We have to have the Lord whisper peace to our souls. Bring us through those times. He's whispered so many wonderful words of life here. And later I found out he became one who would witness of Jesus' faithfulness, even though death kept coming. He lost another son after this. And he eventually himself died of malaria. But he went over to Israel, and some people thought he was fanatical to go over there and to start reaching out to orphans and others and displaced Jews. Um, they called him overcomers. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting that he used it as a derogatory term for his group. But we find, look at his life. I mean, he became an overcomer. He, he was able to go through all of this. And, and some would say he was kind of fanatical at times, some of his teachings. And I'm not recommending all of him. I'm just saying I find it interesting that his experience was able to go through all of that because of this Jesus. And that can only happen if something changed. I would be tempted if I lost all four of my children in one swing. The human sorrow could overtake us, couldn't it? And maybe it would, would for a season. You would dip into that valley of the shadow of death, but you would see a shadow and realize there's some light here and you would look around and you would look for Jesus and you would see him even in the valley. And so he overcomes that dismal. He bears a witness, though not perfectly, to Jesus. And so I believe, here's, my, here's the thing, same thing again. Witnesses of Jesus recognize that all the prophecies and scriptures point to him because they're preparing to meet him. They tell others to live and to drink of this life-giving Jesus. They overcome adversity by looking to Jesus. He's their ever-present source. And we may not always feel like overcomers, but I believe there's a day coming when our names will be changed because we have overcome everything. Our actions and our names will be evidence. We're told we're going to get a new name on this white stone that we have been witnesses of Jesus. That's what I'm looking forward to. In fact, uh, there's a song. We're going to be playing this song at the end of each service for a little while. And it's, it's really a, a personal time between you and the Lord as you read these words. And eventually as you hear the song enough, you might want to sing it. But it's God taking us from where we're at, changing us into who he wants us to be, and giving us a new name. It's by the Neblet family. You can find it on YouTube. I've asked Jerron to bring up the audio, and I'm going to have the words on the screen. But it takes you from where you're at. Even if you feel wounded, outcast, lowly, afraid, lonely, anything, and it changes you to confidence, joyfulness, overcoming one. A true witness of Jesus. Take a listen.
Quite a name change, isn't it? Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the message that John records, that we can be witnesses of Jesus, witnesses that say, in the end, our actions and our names have been changed to be one and the same. Confidence, joyfulness, overcoming one, friend of God, one who seeks your face. Guide us to begin that journey or continue it now, each day, until we see you face to face. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.